Uh, keep it open. We'll follow that through. Let me pray as we come again to God's word. Heavenly Father, well, we thank you for the freedom that we have uh, to meet in this country uh, to study your word together. Uh, we thank you for this opportunity now uh, to look deeply into your word. We pray that you'll settle our hearts. Uh, help us not to be distracted by all the distractions and things that are going on in our lives right now. Help us to humble ourselves before what you are teaching us today and help us to have a heart that uh, longs to respond with trust, repentance and faith. And we thank you for this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, well, time to take stock. That's a language we use sometimes, an expression that we have uh, to reassess a situation and work out whether we're, where we have come from, uh, where we are going and where we're headed and uh, how we're we responding now in relation to all that. Uh, when we hit a major milestone, like a birthday turning 50, for example, it can be an opportunity to take stock. Or if you were to take stock of your life right now, if you were to take stock of your life right now, uh, what would you notice? What would you pay attention to? But if God was to take stock of your life right now, what would he notice? What would he want you to pay attention to? And when we take stock of our lives with God, we not only find out what he really thinks, but we also discover the glorious plans he has for us for the future. And the people in the passage today got to a point in their lives where they felt they needed to take stock and reassess a few things. As they ask God, God tells them what he really thinks and points them to his glorious plans for the future. So there are two chapters to get through today. I'm not going to make a comment on everything, so there's going to be a lot of details that we're going to skip over to get through, but I hope we can get the main point coming through uh, as we go. But um, the, as was mentioned with David in the introduction there, there's uh, sort of talking about these two chapters. They're in the middle of the book and they sort of can be connected to the first six chapters, but they can also be connected to the second half uh, of the book as well. Uh, but um, in, in lots of uh, ways, the first half of Zechariah has been looking at um, what was going to be fulfilled in their lifetime, the people's lifetime, uh, and uh, focusing particularly on the soon-to-be-completed temple. Uh, it's focused on, on what was going on now. Uh, but in the later half of the chapters, chapters 9 to 14, they focus more on the future beyond their lifetime, the not yet, and the now in the first half and the not yet uh, in the second. So chapter 7 starts with a present question, talking about the now, and then chapter 8 ends with this future element about the nations in the future. So it can be seen as a kind of transition between the first half of Zechariah 1 to 6, but also the 9 to 14 uh, as well. So it's sort of in between and it's dealing with both sides of that. And so as we know so far, God's people have been kicked out of the promised land for ignoring God's uh, instructions. And, and as verse 1 shows us that they are living under foreign rule. In the fourth year of King Darius, it says in verse 1 there, the word of the Lord came to Zechariah on the fourth day of the ninth month, the month of Kislev. Now the date given there is roughly two years after the night visions began in chapter 1. So it's two years on. Uh, and also it's two years before the temple was finally completed and uh, in the, year, the sixth year of King Darius, as mentioned in Ezra chapter 6. So things are not quite as settled as they should be. And so they're in this kind of in-between. And so they're deciding to take stock of a few things. So some people come down to the town to ask the priests and the prophets a question in verse 3. The question is, should I mourn and fast? 
in the fifth month as I've done for so many years. Well, for the last 70 years of exile, they have been following this ritual of fasting on the fifth month. In actual fact, it's not only the, the fifth month that they've been fasting. In chapter 8, verse 19, it also speaks of fasting on the fourth, the seventh, and the tenth months, as well as the fifth month. So there's a lot of fasting going on for them. And it's not actually a command uh, in the Old Testament, but it's something they've chosen to do. Now, why those months in particular? It's generally understood to be related to the different stages of the destruction of the temple around 586 BC. So the logic in their mind was basically, if the temple is about to be rebuilt, then it's time to stop mourning and fasting about its destruction. God's judgment is over, isn't it? Surely it's time to celebrate. Now that's a, that's a fair question, don't you think? Uh, and, uh, but instead of a direct answer, a series of probing questions shifts their focus, as verse 4 shows. Verse 4 says this, then the word of the Lord Almighty came to me, ask all the people of the land and the priests. When you fasted and mourned in the fifth month and seventh month for the past 70 years, was it really for me that you fasted? And when you were eating and drinking, were you just feasting for yourselves? These first two questions cut to the heart of their motivation for fasting in the first place. They were being accused of outwardly fasting, but inwardly, disobeying the word of God. And Isaiah captures this perfectly in chapter 58 when he says, look, what good is fasting when you keep on fighting and quarrelling with one another? Now, have you heard the expression uh, genuine fake? You might have travelled around a little bit, particularly in some of the Asian cities, the word genuine fake. You know, if you travel to an international city in Asia, there's always a guy that sort of steps out on the street and tries to sell you something. Do you want to buy a fake Rolex? He says, it's a genuine fake. It's a genuine fake. You know, a fake Rolex. It's a genuine fake, I'm telling you. Nobody can tell the difference. Well, God can spot a fake a mile away. People going through the motions without walking with a humble heart before the Lord in repentance and faith. Now, we might not be able to spot a fake as easily as God does, but God can see one coming a mile away. And that's what the type of hypocrisy that led their ancestors down the path of exile. As it mentions in verse 8 there onwards, he, he goes on this kind of history tour to talk about their ancestors and how they were sort of trying to fake it, pretending they had a relationship with God, but deep down in their hearts, their hearts were hardened. And this is what it says there in verse 8. And the word of the Lord came again in Ze to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer true justice, show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of uh, each other. It was a call to their ancestors to, to live in a righteous way by faithfully walking in the ways of God, with some practical examples regarding the vulnerable given in verse 10 there. And what was their response? So if you see if you can spot the four different ways their response is described in verse 11 and 12. They have a look at verse 11 and 12. There's four different ways their response is described. But they refuse to pay attention. First one, refused to pay attention. Just like we accuse a child, pay attention, young man. Are you listening to me? Refuse to pay attention. What else is used? What other language there can you see? Stubbornly, they turned their backs. Stubbornly, they turned their back. Turning their backs, it's a metaphor the way, uh, for the way an animal refuses the yoke, refuses to take the yoke. It turns its back so it can't. 
The third there is uh, it's covered their ears. They covered their ears and refused to listen. An intentional refusal. Now check out the final way it is described in verse 12 there. They made their hearts as hard as flint. As hard as flint. And would not listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit through the earlier prophets. As hard as flint. As hard as a diamond. It's a very graphic language of hardening our hearts before God. We all know what it's like when we refuse to budge when we're stubborn, but we know we're in the wrong, our hearts are hardened to our own stubbornness and, and we know the other person might be right, but we just can't bring ourselves to admit that they might be right. Now, just like we saw in chapter 1, um, verse 2, God's natural response to their hypocrisy was that the Lord Almighty, in verse 12, was angry, was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. Now these are very chilling words. Very chilling words that the Lord Almighty did not listen. And um, there's a reversal to their idyllic situation in verse 7. describes a situation of an idyllic situation. And that's reversed as God gave them over to choose what they had chosen, to, to give them what they had chosen in turning their backs on God. And verse 14 tells us what the result was. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. Pretty, pretty weighty message there. And the, the thrust of the message of chapter 7 is that repentance and obedience are more important than outward ritual. Trying to pretend, trying to fake it, to obey is better than sacrifice. And as they take stock, they discover what God really thinks is that trying to fake it turns God away from people. Turns God away from people. But that is not the end of the story, of course, because we still have chapter 8, uh, and, the, and, uh, um, and that's great that chapter 8 brings us in. For the argument of chapter 7 is actually setting the scene that, uh, that follows in chapter 8. So the point that follows in chapter 8 can really only be understood in the context of chapter 7 there. And this is what it says at the beginning of verse 1 of chapter 8. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. Although God turns away from people who try to fake it, what he, we also discover about what God really thinks is that he is jealously committed to his people. He's not going to give up on them. His mercy, rather than the people's unfaithfulness, determines the future. And as we explored about God's jealousy in chapter 1 about a month ago, we were reminded that God's jealousy is not sort of equivalent to the, the worst expression of our jealousy. We, we have to be careful when we make these connections. And God's jealousy for his people reflects how he is earnestly protective and watchful for his people. Just like a mother bear is jealously committed to her cubs, 
God desires to overthrow all opposition in his protection and care for those who belong to him. Because God is jealously committed to his people, God has got our back. That's the expression that we looked at a few. God has got our back. Not God is on our back, but God has got our back. He's jealously committed to us. And that sense of jealous commitment to his people has been seen throughout the book of Zechariah so far in God's great reversal, his commitment to turn from judgment to mercy, to turn from curse to turn to blessing. As verse 13 and 15 begins to unpack some of that language there. It says this, As you have been an object of cursing among the nations, O Judah and Israel, so will I save you, and you will be a blessing. Do not be afraid. Let your hands be strong. This is what the Lord Almighty says, Just as I have determined to bring disaster upon you and showed no pity when your fathers angered me, so the Lord Almighty uh, says the Lord Almighty, so now I have determined to do good again to Jerusalem and Judah. Do not be afraid. God always intended that his people should be a blessing. When he made those promises to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12 that through him all people on earth will be blessed and the blessing to all people on earth ultimately of course came through the Lord Jesus and Jesus was the real deal. He, was never, he never needed to fake it no, because he always lived in perfect obedience. His obedience won the blessings of the covenant and he transferred those blessings across to us and saved us from the curse we deserved by his death on the cross. And if we want to know what God really thinks of us, what, if we really want to know what God thinks, we need to look at Jesus. Through Jesus, God has turned his face to us in mercy and blessing, even though we don't deserve it, and not in judgment and curse. He calls us to trust and obey him in response. And he, and he gives us his promise about the future that he has planned for his people there. In verse 3 onwards, this is what he says. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be the, called the city of truth, the mountain of the Lord Almighty, and will be called the holy mountain. And he goes on to say, uh, this. this is what the Lord Almighty says in verse 4. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit on the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls that are playing there. It's a picture of people living together in harmony and peace and in restored in the promised land, living in harmony and peace. Now, sort of a little bit like what morning tea is supposed to be like here on a Sunday morning, except without the ball bouncing around like it was last week. You know, older people and younger people and children living together in harmony together. That's sort of what a little bit of a picture of what we are called to represent when we meet together here as God's people and spend time uh, in the formal part of the service and in the informal part of the service as well. Now this may have seemed unbelievable to the people living in the trauma of the times when they were rebuilding the temple under, the, under fierce opposition. They were thinking, as if, as if this is ever going to happen. This idyllic picture of peace and, uh, and, and, and you know, relationships getting on. It, was hard, it would have been hard for them to understand that and comprehend. 
But with the Lord of hosts, the Lord Almighty, nothing is beyond his power. And verse, express, express, verse 6 expresses that with almost a sense of sarcasm when it says this. In verse 6 there, it says, This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvellous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it be, seem marvellous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. Now, of the 53 times the expression Lord Almighty appears in the, the book of Zechariah, or Lord of Hosts, as some translations um, put it, as George read for us, it appears 18 times in this chapter alone. 18 times, just in this chapter. Lord of Hosts or Lord Almighty. And six times in chapter 7. It's another way of saying uh, Lord of Armies, and the people rebuilding the temple didn't really have any armies as such, so it's reflecting the armies in heaven. Heavenly hosts is the final vision about the, the chariots that we looked at a few weeks ago refers to in chapter 6. But by using it so much here, it is a reminder to the people that their God is more powerful and more mighty than any earthly king. He is the Lord Almighty. Almighty. Only God is the king who is able to bring about the glorious future he has promised the people. So it's important to pay attention to Zechariah who's relaying this message because he's relaying the message of the almighty king. And it will be a future that will be one of feasting rather than fasting as verse 18 finally addresses the question they brought to him in verse 3 of chapter 7. And this is what it says in verse 18. It says this, Again the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. The fast of the fourth, fifth, seventh and tenth months will become joyful and glad occasions and happy festivals for Judah. Therefore love, truth and peace. It speaks of a future where there won't be a reason to mourn but rather they will become occasions for joyful celebration. But the whole point of these chapters is not about what God really thinks about fasting and feasting, but that what God really thinks about is the transformation of their character. That's what he's interested in. That's what he's committed to. And as they live in light of the mercy that God has shown to them, they are called to reflect that character of God in the way they relate together. And that's why it says at the end of verse 18, therefore, love, truth and peace. This is really a summary of verse 16 when it says, speak the truth to each other and render true and sound judgment in your courts. Do not plot evil against each other. Do not love to swear falsely. I hate all this, declares the Lord. What God has commanded earlier to their ancestors who refused to listen with their diamond hard hearts is now repeated to the new generation. It's, it's no different. It's the same message. And that reflection of the character of God is really just part of a bigger picture. For the focus shifts in chapter 8 to an invitation to be part of a glorious plan, not only for their future salvation and blessing, but for that of the nations as they reflect the character of God in their love and truth and peace. And this is the picture that he gives there in verse 20 of his plans. It says this, 20 to 23, This is what the Lord Almighty says, Many peoples and the inhabitants of many cities will yet come, and the inhabitants of one city will go to another and say, Let us go at once to entreat the Lord and seek the Lord Almighty. I myself am going. 
And many peoples and powerful nations will come to Jerusalem to seek the Lord Almighty and to entreat him. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In those days, ten men from all languages and nations will take firm hold of one Jew by the hem of his robe and say, let us go with you, because we have heard that God is with you. It's a picture of what happens when God's people reflect the character of God. If trying, if trying to fake it with God turns God away from people, then being genuine with God turns people towards God as people look on. What happens when we take stock of our lives with God? When we take stock of our lives with God, we not only find out what he really thinks, that all of us have fallen, but he has given us a way out. He's shown mercy. But we also discover the glorious plans that he has for us for the future, that he wants us to be involved in. He has this picture, not only to rescue us and show us mercy, but to be a part of his glorious plan so other people can find out and discover what that mercy means. Well, let me draw two implications from these two chapters here. Two implications. One, are we in danger of being a genuine fake? My dear friend Alan, who's in his 90s now, he's in a nursing home, was, was recounting a story when I went to visit him a few months ago. He asked an elderly lady in the, in the nursing home, if, if she was asked that question, if she was to die tonight, would she be sure that she went to heaven? After all these years of going to church. She wasn't sure. If she was good enough, was her answer. She'd been a churchgoer all her life and probably had done the modern equivalent of fasting by serving morning teas, teaching Sunday school and the like. But she'd really been faking it all these years. She didn't really have a relationship with God. There was no genuine relationship with God in which she understood the gospel. That was reflected in, a, in repentance and faith. That day she humbled herself before God and moved from being a genuine fake to becoming a genuine disciple of the Lord Jesus at the age of 93. Praise the Lord. But it doesn't matter how old we are. We can all fake it with God. We can play the game. We can have, have the outward show. Pretend, say all the right things turn up to all the right activities, but we have no relationship with God. There's no pattern of repentance in our life. That's why a pattern of repentance is so important, because it's recognising that our hearts are hard, that our hearts are diamond hard, and our hearts have been turning away from Christ. But we need to turn back to Christ and accept his forgiveness and allow that to transform the way we relate to God and to others challenge in this passage for some of us today is, have you really repented? Do you actually have a relationship with God? Or is your heart still hard towards him? And that's reflected in the way that you relate to other people. But the second invocation is in recognising what a great picture of the future that God has placed before us. Do people see our transformed lives, the way we treat each other in church and say, wow, I want to know who your God is. Look at the way you relate together. 
I want to have what you have. When people come into this room, when they come in amongst us, do they see us relating in a way that says, I want to be a part of that. I want what they have, they're having. Not a trouble-free life. We don't have trouble-free lives. But a life that is transformed by, the, transformed by the love of truth and peace that comes through the good news of Jesus Christ. That as we travel through the troubles and the challenges of life, that we take great courage in an almighty God who is jealously committed to us. He's jealously committed to us. And as we respond to that kind of God in genuine repentance and faith, and as God transforms our character through that, do we respond to God's inspiring invitation to be a part of his glorious plans by responding and saying, God, how would you have me serve? How would you have me serve as a part of your glorious plan to bring the nations in? And God's plans to draw people to himself and make lifelong disciples of Jesus include our humble congregation here in Enfield, of course. So let me encourage you to keep asking the question as you become more and more a part of this community. Lord, how would you have me serve here in this place at this point in time? Now that doesn't necessarily mean it's a, it's a formal role, but it might be the way that you ask questions of people. It might be the way that you treat people and relate to people, the way that you welcome people. Keep asking the question, Lord, how would you have me serve? As we reflect on some of the, the needs around us, the doors of opportunity that God is opening up are, are vast in this congregation. For example, in the last two years alone, there's been 28 new adults that God has brought into this congregation. 28 new adults. In the last two years, God has brought in over 20 new children into this congregation. That's 48. Now, we have an average of about 40 people here on adults on a Sunday and almost as many children. And sometimes there's, on a given, any given Sunday, there's more children here than there are adults. What, a, what a, a great blessing from the Lord that God has been bringing people into this congregation and being a part of the community here. But that is just one example. But God has given us an opportunity to have a say and an input in raising up a generation of people so that they can become lifelong disciples of Christ. And God has given us an opportunity as adults to grow and learn from having children amongst us and younger people to help us grow as a lifelong disciple of Christ, regardless of what age we are. So as we take stock of where we're at, let us be a congregation that is guided by the past. We learn from the past, but we're inspired by the future and God's plans for the future. But ultimately, we're mastered by Jesus in the present and he guides and shapes our decisions. Not living as genuine fakes, but genuine disciples of Jesus, knowing 
that the grace of God that brings salvation teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and obedient lives while we live in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the glorious appearing of our great God and Saviour, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify himself a people of his very own that are eager to do what is good. May that be a prayer for us all. Now one way to avoid the danger of, of, of trying to fake it with God is to regularly humble ourselves before God in a time of confession, acknowledging that we haven't always said no to ungodliness and worldly passions. We're going to, and we're going to spend a few moments now in silence doing just that as we reflect on what God's word has been saying to us today. I'll allow at least a minute. There's no uh, noise around at the moment. There's a stillness that we can observe here in this room. The children are all downstairs, so we can make the most of this stillness. A minute's a long time, but I'm going to allow a minute. And then we're going to pray the prayer of confession together as it comes up on the overhead. So let's pause now and reflect on what God has been teaching us today. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we praise you for adopting us as your children and making us heirs of eternal life. In your mercy, you have washed us from our sins and made us clean in your sight. Yet we still fail to love you and serve you as we should. Forgive us our sins and renew us by your grace that we may continue to grow as members of Christ, in whom alone is our salvation. Amen. Well, be encouraged, brothers and sisters in Christ, that Jesus Christ gave himself up for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that is his very own, eager to do what is good. Our, our God, who is jealously committed to us, to his people, therefore turns and forgives those who look to his son Jesus for mercy. Amen.